I don't know where you're at this morning. Well, you're here. <laughs> but I don't know where you're at in terms of where your heart is. I don't know what troubles lurk in your soul and in your mind. But I know that God reveals himself to people according to their need. And in this present context, what you have is a situation where the people of God had sinned. And they had sinned egregiously. They had, in essence, committed adultery on their honeymoon. They had broken the covenant. And God had chastised them. They have been punished. And now, as Moses is on the mountaintop, the people are at the base, and they are in mourning. And they are wondering, will we be forgiven? Will we be accepted? Or will God cast us aside and wipe his hands of us? Brothers and sisters, there's a myth out there that, you know, that Christians are these goody two-shoes or that, or that we come to church and we have our academic discussions and that we formulate our doctrine that's just philosophical inquiry and that sermons are just feel-good sophistry and that our songs are just trite. The reality is that when God reveals himself and we formulate doctrine, it is for our need that we might find grace in our time of need, that we might come before the living God in truth. It is eminently practical. And our songs, which should stem from good theology, are also expressions of a real engagement with God. Such as the song we sang or was sung to us in our special music where this young lady who had endured so much struggle and so many trials in a short life was able, out of her anguish and pain, to fall upon the grace of God and, and remind herself and us that God is a refuge for weary souls. Our songs and our doctrine are for real people and real-life circumstances. The people were questioning, will we be forgiven? Will we be accepted? And brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are. But I do know that from this passage, I want to show you why you should turn to the Lord. And I want to turn you, show you how to turn to the Lord. Okay? Now, Moses asks to see God's glory. Do not think that God's glory represents it, that it's some sort of glowing, ethereal aura that surrounds him like, like some sort of luminescent light, okay? God's glory stems from and flows from his very nature and his character. So in this passage, God is using anthropomorphic language. He doesn't have a body. Okay? He's a spirit. The Bible affirms he doesn't have a body like us. So he doesn't have a literal face. He doesn't have a literal backside. He doesn't have a literal hand. It's anthropomorphic language to convey a point that the very presence of God is there. 
in that it's the very presence of God that protects Moses from God. But God's character and His nature are what is on display here. And God's character is so holy. And God's nature is so incomprehensibly great that it literally is too much for a human to bear in its full force. But God's nature is why we can bank on Him. He tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And these words echo, and they come down through the ages in all their force, that we serve a sovereign God who is never a man's debtor. God gives each person as God will give them. So the people down there are mourning. And so the number one thing they have to understand is that as guilty sinners before a holy God, they have no plea of their own. If they are to be saved, it is God's sovereign mercy alone that will save them. And we need to remember that in our understanding as we think about what goes on in the world and as you hear complaints from people about the so-called injustice of God to condemn whatever, we are all sinners. And we stand before a holy God. No one can plead that they deserve God will show mercy to whom He will show mercy. And He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. Why? Because He is the Lord. And what does it mean for Him to be Yahweh, the Lord? Remember, this is an expression in the indefinite sense, in the indefinite case of I am Meaning that He is, He was, and He will be all at the same time. He is without past tense. He is without future tense. He just is. He is life and light. He is the ground of all being. He is that beyond which there is no other. He is absolutely free, absolutely self-determining, absolutely self-sufficient. And so, He is the one who has made. He is the one who sustains. He is the one who carries. He is the one who discloses Himself. Scripture has given us Knowledge that there are in fact two kinds of revelation. There is general revelation. That God has given to all the world. And general revelation tells us that God is almighty. That He is there. That we should worship Him. And that those who do not are rightly condemned. General revelation holds every person accountable. It calls everyone out on the carpet. But general revelation cannot save. General revelation can only ever 
condemn. And so in his mercy, the sovereign, the free, the self-sustaining one has given knowledge that is special. He has revealed himself. He has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed himself in his historical manifestations. He has revealed himself in Christ. And thereby, we have access to the knowledge of God that we need to be found right in his sight. Special revelation is absolutely essential. And Moses is aware that he will not know about God unless God reveals it to him. The people are aware of their guilt. The people are aware that they are imperfect now. But now they need to have their reasoning under... They need to come to grips with who God is and why he can be turned to. Because God in his mercy reveals himself that he is, in fact, out of his character, gracious and merciful. Isn't that amazing that you have a God who is absolutely free and sovereign? And in the words of, of, of a uh, chastised Nebuchadnezzar, the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and no one can say to him, what have you done? This sovereign God, nonetheless, chooses to be merciful and gracious. The inclination and disposition of his being is to be forbearing. Does that mean then that we can make little in light of God's goodness? No. Because what does he say? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God reveals that His disposition is benevolent. His inclination is kindness. And He reveals Himself this way by introducing Himself as a God who is this way. Have you ever looked at that in verse 6? The first letter is A. A God. I thought God's the only God. Why is God saying, I'm a God who's this way? Well, this is not an acknowledgement from God that there are other living, breathing, hearing, revealing, acting deities out there. But God knows what a God is. A God subjectively is anything in which we put our trust. And there are many such things in this world. But He's a God of mercy. A God of compassion. A God who's slow to anger. Man, you know what that looks like? That is like, that his anger is the fuse that is both long and slow burning. It's the kind of fuse I hate on 4th of July because I'm wanting it just to... And it, his fuse is not slow, short and quick. Nor, is it, no, no, nor does he have a trigger temper. If God's wrath was, was quickly kindled, and if he was of a short-tempered disposition, who, who could stand? Because we all sin each and every day. But God's temper is both long and slow-burning. 
he is slow to anger because he loves mercy. He understands our frame, that we are children of dust and frail. So he is patient, and he abounds with loving kindness. That's that beautiful Hebrew word, hesed, which refers to his covenant faithfulness. Where he has made a promise, and it abounds, it bubbles over, it never ends. It's like one of those amazing thermal pots at Yellowstone that rain, sleet, snow, or shine, middle of an ice storm, thunderstorm, hot, humid summer, well, it's not really humid there, but hot summer day, it's the same. It's just coming over and just bubbling in the pool, emitting steam. It's an awesome spectacle in the natural world. And it's even more amazing knowing that this is how God is in regards to his kindness to his people. So why can you come to God? Because this is how he is. He longs with with arms outstretched for his people to come to him recognizing that he is the embodiment, so to speak, of mercy. He's quick. And he keeps steadfast love for thousands. Now right here at the text we have a a problem. Or the appearance of a problem. Have you ever looked at verse 6 and verse 7? It seems seems to be a a conflict or or an inherent contradiction. It says that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, so the text uses the three Hebrew words for sin to show just how effusive and how thorough God's forgiveness is. Regardless of of the particular sin or the kind of depravity, God God is just a forgiving God, okay? It says he forgives iniquity and transgression and and sin, but... He will by no means clear the guilty. So people who commit sin and transgression and iniquity are guilty. And it says he will forgive all that. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see the the tension? What is it? Will he forgive you or will he not? Will he clear the guilty or will he not? What does that mean? And that's why so many people struggle with, with, will God forgive me or not? He says he doesn't clear the guilty. So what is it? Are you a God of mercy or are you not? Well, we we have a clue here of what he means in the fact that this passage While, if you look at your systematic theologies, you'll find scant usage of this passage uh, in in terms of our development of our doctrine of God, okay? So, So systematic theology texts hardly rely on this passage at all, even though this is the longest uh, narrative description of God's character in the Bible, Christian theology texts make scant use of it. However, if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, this passage appears to be the primary 
uh, theologically shaping passage concerning who their understanding of God's character. And the prophets especially will refer back to this passage. If you look at Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Joel, of course, is condemning the people for centuries of idolatry and sin and rebellion. Okay, and, he, and he paints a picture that the Lord is about to wage war against, against the people of God. And, and he paints this picture that God's camp is set. His army is arrayed. I mean, he, he's ready to launch the attack. But then he says, but even now, repent and turn. For our God is merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast. And he cites this passage, and this passage serves in that context as, as a reason to repent. That even now with judgment about to strike, it is not too late. Repent, because God loves to forgive. And then of course in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah knows these words, but they're a source of anger to him because he's just preached against that pagan city Nineveh and they turn and God relents from his promised destruction or his stated destruction and, Mo, and Jonah is angry and he goes, I knew you would relent. And then he cites this passage. In other words, he understands from this passage that God forgives people who repent. And of course, he was angry because he didn't want those people to be forgiven. So in this passage then, right here, when you have this apparent conflict, he forgives the guilty, but he won't clear the guilty. What is it? Well, you should see that it's referring to two types of people. There are the people who repent. And those people find clemency. They find a God who has his arms outstretched ready to shower mercy and tenderness and kindness on them. But there are those who will not. There are those who in the stubbornness of their heart will persist in their own way. And they, according to God's character and nature, will by no means be cleared. God never, ever, ever overlooks a sin. He is not fine with it. He does not sweep it under the rug. Now for His people, this is important because it's the basis for why we turn the other cheek. We do not seek vengeance because according to the New Testament, we are to make room for God's. Precious in the Lord's sight are the tears and the blood of His people. And every wronging inflicted upon His people will be meted out. The day of judgment cometh. So why? Why repent? Because God will not overlook it. If you repent, God will give full pardon. If you turn to Him, full pardon and acceptance to thousands. To thousands? That brings up the second difficulty with this text. We read this and we are immediately gravitating towards what appears to be generational blessing and cursing. 
that if I do something, descendants down the road are going to reap the consequences, for good or for bad. And, the, and these words are, are, are kind of a, a struggle. Now, what's the significance of them? Well, first of all, um, what I don't think it means is that we're simply talking about the, the side effects of actions. That, that, that if, I am, if I'm a bad person, then, then the side effects, the consequences, if I'm an alcoholic and I'm, and I'm beating up my family members, that that, that carnage is going to be descended out, protracted out. Nor, does it, nor do I think it means that, it, that if I'm a good person, that, that just the overflow of my blessings will somehow distill goodness on down through the generations. Uh, I, I do not think it means anything that takes away from the responsibility of any given generation to walk in the light of God's Word. This passage cannot be used by you to bemoan your lot and say it's your granddaddy, your great-granddaddy's fault. Okay? You, I, I remember, I think I've shared this before, it was just one of those pivotal things that the lunacy of it stuck out to me. I was in high school, and I was going to this youth group thing, and, and this woman was, was unhealthy, and, and she was overweight, and she was crying that... She blamed her mama for not teaching her how to eat right, even as she was shoving a ho-ho or whatever in her face. That is not what this passage is teaching. This passage is not teaching you that it's okay to look back in the past to blame prior generations for your actions. This passage is calling every generation to have a forward-looking mindset that what I do, not what was done before, what I do has real consequences. Now, does God punish people for other people's sins? I think you have to look at Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18 answers this question in a dramatically negative way. Namely, you stand, you live, you die because of your sins. He, he, he thoroughly, Ezekiel, negates all this. He says that if there's a righteous man who has a son who departs from that way, that, 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 that guy, that wicked kid, is not going to be saved because of the father's righteousness. He dies because of his sin. So much for showing mercy to thousands of generations without regard to their subsequent belief. Likewise, you have a kid who grows up and his father's a wretch. He's an immoral, godless man. And he turns from that wicked way. He will live and not be condemned alongside his father. So much for being destroyed and judged because of father's sins. But then Ezekiel goes even further. If you're good at the start and then turn away, your earlier good won't save you. Likewise, if you're wicked at the start, and then you turn, your earlier wicked will not be held against you. So Ezekiel 18.20 sums it up, the soul who sins shall die. 
The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what does it mean here then? That God shows mercy to thousands. And he visits the Father's iniquity upon the children and the children's children. Well, I believe, like in everything else, context is key. And what is the context? Well, Israel has sinned, and they're needing to be restored. So what was the sin they had committed? Well, they had committed all sorts of sins, but the chief sin they had committed is they had committed idolatry. Right? They made a golden calf. They committed idolatry. Now, think back, if you will, of all the Ten Commandments, of all the laws that God has given, but of the Ten Commandments in particular, there's only one commandment in which God speaks of visiting iniquity upon the descendants. Remember which commandment that is? The second commandment about idolatry. Isn't that interesting? That out of all the commandments, all God's moral law, he doesn't say in regards to the fourth commandment or the fifth commandment. He says it in regards to the second commandment. Why do you think that is? Because of what idolatry is. Remember how God in the first word of verse 6 says, I'm a God? Not because he's acknowledging the reality of other spiritual beings, but, but because he understands that anything can become a God and he's the only true and living God? When you think in terms of an idol being something that we treasure and we place our hope in, it drives our values. It drives our decisions. It drives our outlook. It can even drive our moods. When you look at it that way, you can see how idolatry is so pernicious because they tend to be generational. A person's values and priorities in life tend to become mirrored and shaped by a culture and a culture's values and priorities and the things in which they place their trust they tend to go on generationally and culturally so in a unique way one's object of worship if it's passed along will be picked up by the next generation now, when it says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon their children and their children, he's not saying that I'm going to punish your kids because you worship the wrong thing. But in a context where God knows psychologically how humans work, kids typically tend to worship the same things their fathers did. And here's the deal, okay? You get back to, to God showing mercy to thousands and, or, and, and God being free. If God punishes it in you, he's going to punish it in your kids. He's going to punish it in your grandkids. He's going to punish it in your ch- grandchildren's grandchildren. God will never, ever just say, oh, that's their culture. God will never say, oh, they can't help themselves. They learn it from their father. That sin that you are planting in their heart, it's going to be taken, it's going to take ownership of them and be manifested in them, and God's going to condemn it. 
and they will be condemned. And they're going to pass it along to their kids, and they're going to be condemned too. As long as sin reigns, God is up to the task and the challenge of confronting it. Because sin never, ever, ever gets a pass. But in the same way, when someone worships the Lord and has set a godly example, children tend to grow up with the faith of their fathers. That's a human fact. And so you set your kids on a trajectory to take ownership of the covenant. And as they believe, they experience God's blessing just like you. And as their children take ownership of the blessing, God's blessing is upon them as well. And and their descendants and their descendants. Because God never gets to the point where he says, oh, that's just cultural. Everyone takes ownership of their decisions. So what you need to do is recognize that in special regards to the nature of the second commandment and idolatry, that your actions, the choice of the God you worship, will likely find ownership in the hearts of your children. And you are setting them on a trajectory either for life or for death. God will not just condemn it in you. He will condemn it in them. So this commandment and these, and these words are never meant for you to look back at your grandpappy. It's for you to look at yourself. What am I doing? What trajectory and course am I setting? But then lastly, ultimately we can say, well, God clears the, God's willing to forgive, but he won't clear the guilty. Just saying, I'm sorry, I'm still guilty. How can I be cleared? Have you noticed that? God's justice is perfect. It's not, a ju- it's not an emotional just wiping away. It's, it's, it's real and it's judicial. So we know, and, and the old covenant people should have grasped and realized that what this was doing was pointing forward to a plan in which God would be both just and the just. That the reason they can be forgiven and God not having just cleared the guilty is ultimately grounded in the blood of the eternal covenant according to Hebrews. The reason God can forgive and not be accused of clearing the guilty is because Jesus Christ in His sacrifice took the punishment. He took our guilt. So it hasn't been cleared. It's been paid for. And you, in your experience, get to walk and breathe the fresh, clean air, knowing that you are accepted because of what Jesus has done, grounded in a covenant made in eternity past. So maybe you right now are wondering if God can forgive you. Or maybe you're wondering if God will accept you. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The whole scope. The question is not, can God forgive? He can forgive anything that can be repented of. So the question is, will you? Will you come and seek forgiveness from the one who has declared that he has outstretched arms 
ready and willing to show you his effusive, bubbling over loving kindness. Because he gives you this notice. Do it now and, and, and everything is forgotten in your mind. But if you don't, remember, God is just and he will never, ever, by no means, let the guilty slide. So will you come? Will you? Will you repent of your sins? Will you ask God for mercy because of Jesus? Or will you proudly sit and live life on your own terms, imagining that God is Mr. Rogers or Santa Claus, and ultimately butt up into the ground of reality? Let's pray.